Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience, specializing in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? I'm with Hannah Fons today, and we're going to be talking about all things trans. She's going to teach us, open our minds, and enlighten us, no doubt, as we delve into her experience being non-binary trans, and she's going to tell you all about what that means. We're going to talk about her relationships with her family and the community. She's open to also talking about her experiences with oppression and discrimination, all while she lovingly strives to help the binary heteronormative population, gosh, I hate that word, heteronormative. Anyway, as she helps us to gain insight and move us towards knowledge building and acceptance rather than tolerance of those who are different from what most of us think or believe is normative. So a bit about Hannah. She's an editor, writer, strength coach, and artist. She's originally from a small town in the Midwest, but has been a proud New Yorker for over 20 years. She holds a master's degree in gender and sexuality studies from the CUNY Graduate Center and a master's in social work from Adelphi University. And she speaks frequently on topics around gender diversity and awareness to governmental agencies, nonprofit groups, and to students. She made a TEDx talk in 2018 entitled, Neither He Nor She But Me, which has garnered over 120,000 views. And her essays on non-binary gender orientation have been published in several anthologies. I met Hannah, it has to be at least five years ago. I'm not, yeah, I'm at least. Sure. At least. Yeah, it might have been more. Yeah, so we met at a social work education conference in Saratoga, New York, where she presented on her experiences as a trans person with a theoretical bent that was so impressive and yet so relatable, I just had to have her come to my students and speak in my course uh, called Diversity, Oppression, Privilege, and Social Justice, and she has graciously been doing so every semester since. So Hannah, great to be with you as always. Totally. It's so nice to be here. This is this is cool. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad. You're such a generous and gracious speaker of your time and just of your personal experience. So as you know, we're going to talk about your personal experience with being non-binary trans. And so I think a good starting point is just to educate our audience who may not be familiar with the terms a little bit on what it means and the aspect of gender variation. So if you can start with that, that'd be great. So someone's biological sex is, this has to do with the body, it's external genitalia, secondary sexual characteristics, chromosomes, hormone levels, that kind of thing, like measurable quantitative things about a person's body. Biological sex is generally 
assumed to be binary. A little, you know, baby is born. First thing that someone says is a boy, it's a girl. There are, of course, exceptions to this. Intersex people can be intersex. People can have sort of indeterminate genitalia at birth that are, could go either way. Mm-hmm. No, nothing is ever just black or white. There's always there's always variations that that keep things interesting. But so biological sex is the physical medical state of being male or female mm-hmm. for purposes, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that. And so then you have your sexual orientation, which is regardless of your biological sex, this is who you're attracted to romantically, sexually, who you want to be with. Mm-hmm. So that's like the second plank, right? Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is gender orientation. And so that that's where I think people kind of get tripped up because a person's gender orientation is sort of your internal sense of feeling masculine or feminine. Typically, biological sex and gender orientation are congruent, right? If your biological sex is male, your gender orientation is most likely masculine or male, right? You're like, yeah, I'm a dude. Cool with being a dude. Always been a dude. That, that works. Like, that's not a question. It's just, it's just right there for you. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it doesn't. So that's when, that's where transness and non-binary identities and that, that come into it. The very important thing to remember, and this is for people who are in a clinical setting and then also just people, just as you're, you know, just dealing with humans in the world, is that a person's biological sex, say you're, you're a biological female and your sexual orientation, say, say you are, you're, you have a lesbian orientation. So you're a biological female person who's romantically and sexually interested in women. Well, that doesn't mean you want to be a man. It doesn't mean you identify as a man. So your gender orientation is this. And so now we get into other terms, like we would say that you are your cisgender. So if you're cisgender, that would mean, or cis for short, this means that your biological sex and your gender orientation are congruent. And there's no, there's no conflict there. If you are transgender, it means your biological sex and your gender orientation are at odds in some way, to some degree or other. Could be a little bit, could be a lot, could be, could be a huge problem. And the thing is, your sexual orientation, that is independent of both of those things. So you could be, and, and, and you know, people sort of, they start to kind of glaze over and the head kind of spins when I say something like, well, you could be biologically male. You could be born, born male. Your biological sex is male. You could be heterosexual. So you're attracted to women. And then turns out that, in fact, you're transgender. So you might, so you're, you might then transition from your starting point as a, as a biologically male person with a female gender identity who's attracted to women. So if you're living as a, you know, if you're, if you're embodying a, a masculine identity, you would have a girlfriend and maybe you have a wife and there you go. If you transition, now you're presenting and living your true self as a woman. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're all of a sudden going to be tra- attracted to men. Gender transition does not necessarily impact sexual orientation. So it's like you started life as a straight guy and now you're a lesbian. It's like, oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it sounds, it sounds, it sounds kind of just it's like, that sounds wild. That sounds chaotic. But really once you understand that biological sex Sexual orientation and gender identity are three separate qualities mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that most of the time match up, but sometimes don't, and sometimes mm-hmm. recombine in ways that that are like sort of atypical. That makes a lot of this a little bit easier to understand. I think you know, I've been living in my knowledge building of this uh, subject for a few years now, and my head is still spinning as you're. <laughs> I'm thinking yeah. about the audience who's trying to make sense of this all, and mm. 
Yeah, it's, it's really confusing. Let's just start at maybe the basics with this idea of why do you think, and as with any trans person or with any identity, I think it's very important not to assume just because I'm talking to Hannah that you're a representation of all trans people. This is right. your definitely opinion. not uh, your opinion. So I just wanted to ask you, what do you make of people who have trouble accepting or understanding that this is not a choice? Because I really don't like this example, but this is like this. This is what broke, uh, I think, the discussion open for a lot of members in our culture, which mm. is Caitlyn Jenner, who at the right. age of, I forget, I don't know if she was 66, she was in her 60s. And all of a yeah. sudden she decides that she wants to live her life as a woman. And a lot of people had a very hard time understanding that rather than understanding that maybe she was suppressing this for 60-something years and decided to be true to herself. She just made the decision that eh, she wants to try this lifestyle, right. as though it's a lifestyle, by the way. But so I, ask, <laughs> so I ask you, what are your thoughts on that? Or how do you help people to understand that? Well, I mean... I... I think that, that that sort of opens the, the uh, uh, gender dysphoria is, I think, another term that might be helpful to, to introduce and talk about a little bit. Dysphoria is a, it's a clinical term that just basically describes a sense of tension or dis-ease with, with some I love that. situation. Yeah, I love it's like that. dis-ease. I think what adds to the confusion is that all of a sudden it's become trendy, and I'm saying that. But, yes, in, in a certain fashionable way. in certain right. circles, fashionable, right? Why, like everybody, all of a sudden is trans. You can see trans yeah. on the subway. You can see trans. I mean, everywhere you can identify people who look like they were biologically born a certain gender and now are right. carrying themselves not carrying themselves. What's the phrase? Presenting. Thank you. Presenting yes. themselves as as the opposite gender. And like, where were all these people before? So, you know, on one hand, we could say, well, really, is our society become so much more accepting that we've allowed them now to present themselves mm -hmm. and we've made some room for them to present themselves, even though we're going to get to how much room are we really allowing with all the oppression right. and the hate crimes and all of that. Let me just ask you your personal trajectory when you first felt different. It's so interesting. Like every time I ask a question, I feel like I'm potentially standing uh, on landmines because I don't want to offend. And I know you personally do not get offended. <laughs> I can ask you anything. Very tough. I, it doesn't matter. I still feel like you want to be respectful and um, even to, to phrase it as feel different. And it is different because it's not the majority of us walking around on this earth. So if For there's sure. another way of saying it though, please do correct me. Well, I mean, the story, the, the the anecdote that I always tell when I, you know, when asked that question or when it's, you know, it's part of the conversation is that when I was really small, like preschool, my grandma, my mom's mom was, she was supervising my bath and she was like, we're just talking. And she's like, well, what do you want to, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I told her I wanted to be a man and have a wife. Oh, and so I suppose it's probably, <laughs> should probably say, since this is a podcast and not visual. <laughs> so, so I'm, I am biologically female. My, my biological sex is female. My sexual orientation is pansexual, and my gender orientation is non-binary, masculine-leaning, transgender. Okay, now you got to explain that. You got to explain the pansexual. Yeah, right. so, and the, okay, go ahead. right. So I have so biologically female. Yeah, I'm attracted. To, uh, I shouldn't say I'm attracted to all. Every, I'm not attracted to everybody. I'm, <laughs> I'm extremely picky. But a person's gender really has very little to do with whether or not I'm going to find them attractive. If you're, you know, if I'm attracted to you, I'm attracted to you. I, I really do not care whether you're male, female, trans, whatever. 
So it's other factors factor into that, not not that not how your not how your genitals are arranged. We just right, and that's not a character of being trans. That's a character no. of being Anna. Right. Okay. Let's just make um, it clear. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of trans people who are just rock solid heterosexuals, and it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, that's as far as my my how my transness manifests. If I was, I don't identify as a trans man. So if I had, I, I have taken testosterone, as you can tell by my beautiful singing voice, I've taken testosterone for over 20 years. I had uh, chest surgery about 12 years ago. So bilateral mastectomy, it was a bit of reconstruction. It's, for as far as surgery, that's all I've done. All I intend to do, everything else I'm, I'm perfectly fine with uh, as is. So yeah, so I don't, I don't consider myself a man. I never did. Even though, at, you know, when I was like four or whatever, that was, again, that limited vocabulary I had at the time. It's like, well, uh, what else? I do. Of course, I'm going to grow up to be a man and have a wife. That seems to make more sense than. <laughs> hmm. And so, and my grandma was just kind of like, huh, well, all right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she, to her great credit, she didn't shut it down to be like, well, that's just impossible. You can't do that. You know, whatever. She just kind of chuckled and was like, this kid's weird, but I mean, they knew that already. So my, my experience of, and you're gonna to have to put a pin in the question that you asked that kicked this off because I've already lost the thread of what I meant. <laughs> it was when you first started feeling different. And oh, you right, okay. that, right? right. And what the difference yeah. looked like. So yeah. So so my experience with gender dysphoria was I would say moderate to sub-severe, <laughs> depending on the age that you caught me at. So as a little kid, when prepubescent child, I just was sort of a raging tomboy. And the only the thing I would really pitch a fit over would be having to wear a dress for some sort of like family function or social thing. Fortunately, my parents were, were not super strict about that. And then once they were just like, this is not worth putting this child in this dress for this kind of, you know, for a, a tantrum. And most likely, like I would sabotage dresses <laughs> on the way in the car, on the way wherever we're going, I'd like tear them and like put jam on them or whatever and just be like, well, I guess I'll have to get rid of this. No good. <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way. Exactly. And we were not in a financial position to provide endless dresses. So once the dresses ran out, I got to wear pants and everything was cool. Mm-hmm. And then and, and gravitating toward more like boy coded toys. Like I had an extensive collection of G.I. Joe action figures and like Star Wars and He-Man and stuff would be deeply offended if anybody tried to give me a baby doll. Very cool stuffed animals. Though. <laughs> so, but then I also loved sparklies. Like if you if I could have gotten my hands on like a like I never took dance classes as a kid, because I was just like, that was like, that was kind of too girly, but I loved the idea of getting a sparkly leotard because it's kind of like a superhero. So you're, you're really deeply confusing us even more because (laughs) you want to be able to put you in a box. And here you are saying you didn't like dresses. In fact, you hated wearing them, but you like sparkly things. You said by the tone of your voice that the audience can probably tell that you have taken hormones or that you sound like a male And yet you still go by the name of Hannah. Mm -hmm. So we want to be able to say, well, okay, okay. Yeah, we get it. We're trying to understand this. But so what are you? Are you a man or are you a woman? Yes. (laughs) No. Yes. No. No. I mean, it's so the trajectory part of it may inform some of the the answer to what you just presented. So really the only, what I would consider to be like a crisis point for me in my like uh, early development I knew, like my my folks gave me when I was, I don't know, 11, maybe 10 or 11, these two books on, one was on reproduction and the other one was on puberty. And you know, rather than sitting me down and having like the talk, they just gave me some reading material. <laughs> We're like, 
give these a look, come back to us with questions and we'll, which I think was as a fair, <laughs> a very loving, but then also, you know, Midwestern sort of reserve, like nobody wants to have a talk. So I, I was very, very thankful that that's how they handled it. Cause I didn't want to have the talk with them either. Mm-hmm. So there was, there were two facing pages with, with these super realistic pencil renderings of human development from infancy to adulthood. There was male on one page and female on the other. And these were like, you know, anatomical drawings, like nudes. And I was like, I looked at the female side because I understood myself to be female, even if I had some notes on that. <laughs> like, and so I looked at this page with the, with the, the female development on it. I'm just like, I don't want any part of that. Like, that's, I mean, it's lovely, but I don't want that. That, that looks sort of vaguely ridiculous to me. The man side, there was parts of, of like the sort of physique and everything that I, that I was like, yeah, I, I would much rather have that. I don't want a penis though. <laughs> that just, mm-hmm. that seems like bad design to me. Highly, <laughs> highly vulnerable. Really? Like, how do you keep that in order? I don't know. But it was still, it was still sort of theoretical that like I was going to have to go through this, this process myself and come out on the other side of it as a, like a, as a woman, which mm-hmm. I mean, even saying that kind of catches I'm just like, oh. and, and it's not, I, I had a very like equitable egalitarian Midwestern small town, but, but very sort of liberal upbringing. So it wasn't as though that my house was, there was misogyny in my house or that my parents equally shared childcare. It was, you know, there was so, so, so this does not come from a place of, of me having a hatred for women, hostile to yes. feminine anything. Yes. Yeah. That's, that was not part of this no abuse, nothing like that. So this was just, this was just my inner sense of like, that's not me. I don't. Yeah. And so, so going through puberty, going through female puberty was traumatic. It was a nightmare, even still as, as grossed out as I was by it and just sort of like repulsed at the the sort of mutiny of my own physicality at the time. Like I still didn't, it didn't, it didn't make me like wildly withdrawn. I never, you know, I wasn't, I never engaged in self-harm. Grades stayed decent always had some bullying when I was in middle school, but then like a lot of people do and it wasn't, uh, it was eventually resolved. But that must have wreaked havoc on your psyche. I mean, here you are feeling like you want to be in a male body, feeling like not you want to be, that that's your destiny. That that's... I would have strongly preferred a more ma- a more masculine body. A more masculine body. Yeah. And here you are developing breasts and menstruating. I can't yeah. imagine anything more horrific. Right. For- Another way I've used to describe it is though, as though, and this is not to trivialize it, but I think it's maybe a little more accurate in my experience, given the sort of the, the severity of the, the dysphoria, the level of dysphoria I experienced was like, like going through puberty and then and developing more obviously female physical traits. It was like, it was like putting on a Halloween costume that was like, I thought it was kind of dumb and I didn't, you know, I didn't get to pick it out. I didn't get to choose it. I had to wear it all the time and I could never take it off. Right. Put a clown nose on me and was just like, well, that's your life now. It's like, right. I think that that's a perfect way of trying. I I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Just sort of vaguely ridiculous. And and, um, I ended up with like C cups. So it wasn't like, you know. (laughs) Right. Right. So, so let me ask you this because again, there's a lot of controversy and, and Mm. strong opinions about adolescents making this decision to start hormone therapy Mm. or use blockers, whatever, and how they're not emotionally mature enough to make that decision. What happens if they're going through a phase? And so there's that. And then I know if I recall personally for you, you didn't have your surgery until 
well beyond. Uh, yeah, I was 33. You were 33. I started hormones, hormones at like 29. And then I think I had top surgery at 33. Okay. So so talk about that. Your personal experience of when you mm-hmm. waited, you know, how you waited and when you decided it was your time mm-hmm. and the whole perspective on you knew as an adolescent that this felt terrible. And so yeah. why not start it earlier? I think... Um, I think I have, my, I have sort of fundamentally stoic temperament. And so also because my, my sexual orientation was fairly flexible, I didn't, I didn't have an ex, the experience of like, say, uh, an adolescent, young adolescent, lesbian identified female person in my era. So, I mean, and also remind, remember, this is like 1989, 1990. I was most, most of my crushes and most of my romantic interests, not that... <laughs> that I got to do anything about it for a while because it was a farm town and I was weird, but I generally crushed on boys. And so, so there wasn't, there wasn't a component of, and also to write that right about that time, it was also sort of a little bit, you could, there was a little bit of social cachet to be, to be gained in like the, the, my group of friends by being bisexual. So like, it wasn't like I was tortured like, Oh my God, you guys, I think I'm bi. I was just like, yeah, I'm bi. Like, Half of my friends and as a female bodied person, generally primarily attracted to boys. It was like, well, I like breasts on other people. I don't love them on myself, but I do have my own set to bring to the party. So like, it's really, (laughs) you know, everybody seems to be having a decent time here. So this is really not an emergency. And remarkably, if I recall as well, that your mom was incredibly supportive. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Which is unusual, not only coming from, not only yeah. in the society, but coming from a small Midwestern town. Yes, yeah. yeah. So hugely blessed, and and um, my my folks were divorced when I was about twelve, and I've been estranged from my dad. But my mom is excellent. My two younger sisters are amazing, and my stepdad is fantastic. So there's been really like zero zero familial cost to me for any of this. Which who who can say how much of my general excellent mental health and stability and all that stuff can be attributed to, I, I attribute a great deal of it just to my, to my family and, and the fact that I didn't, at no time was I ever concerned with when I came out as bi and then later as pansexual and then eventually as trans. At no time was I ever concerned that this was going to estrange me from my family. Mm-hmm. And if you have that, then you can move the slings. I mean, that's quite a weight are, off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, huge, huge. Because there's always, there's always a safe place to go. Mm-hmm. Home is your harbor, and it's that's that's a huge gift, which I am like always, always thankful for. But when I got to New York, I moved to New York in 2000, and from the University of Iowa. And I this is, it is I don't know if I told you the story, if it's ever gotten into the 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 class conversations. But I've always been well, not always actually. In college, I started weight training and doing martial arts. And, and it, so much so I'm a strength coach now at a martial arts gym and I've been doing that work for a decade in addition to all the other stuff I do. I started, this was back in the day when you could buy testosterone precursors like androstenedione and, you know, Mark McGuire, I think one of the, like a baseball player got in a bunch of trouble yeah. for taking all these, these yeah. testosterone precursors, right? You can buy them at vitamin shop or at GNC. And so in furtherance of my weightlifting regimen, I was like, oh, you know, but if I take a big party stack of all of these different precursors and boost my testosterone, well, then I might be able to get that that muscular frame and, and physique that I have been, you know, coveting since I was old enough to read about it. And so I did that. 
it had very negligible effects on my weight training. But what it did do was piss my liver off. So when I went to my thankfully highly LGBTQ conversant general practitioner for a physical, my blood work came back uh, with some concerning results. And she asked me, she's like, are you taking supplements or anything like that? And I was like, yeah. She's like, well, you need to stop that immediately. And so I was like, I'm a compliant patient. I was like, all right, fine. So like I said, it didn't, it didn't do anything much for my, my gym efforts. But when I stopped taking that, I sort of felt like, like a sort of weird brain fog had sort of come over me. I just felt kind of out of sorts. And I was just like, shit, what I, what I realized was that it had, they had those taking all that stuff had raised my testosterone levels enough that I was feeling psychological benefits from it, even though it really didn't do much for me physically and taking it away in the absence of it. I was like, Oh, like, what does that mean? Psychological benefits? What, well, what? I just, I just felt more myself. I felt like a million bucks. I was like, it's, it's hard to describe. I just, I felt, I felt like I felt more myself. And, and, and like when I, in my, when I did the Ted talk a few years ago, I described it as though like, you know, having, having gender dysphoria is like having, it's like having a bunch of browser tabs open in your head all the time. That's like draining your battery or like, it's like having a, a radio static, trying to think through radio static. Yeah. I love the way you and, talk. <laughs> <laughs> you. So yeah, like trying to think, feel, love, create anything, anything that in your life that you're doing, it's like doing it through like this, this little film. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so having that film removed, I'm like, Oh. And so when I went back to the, my doctor, I was like, listen, I've been sort of like thinking around this, like skirting this idea for a while, but, and I explained this to her and I was like, what do you think? I'm like, I don't necessarily want to start injecting myself with testosterone, but is there perhaps a a middle way to this? And so we talked it through and I wound up with a prescription for uh, Androgel, which is like a 1% testosterone gel. It's applied topically. And I used that for, I don't know, a year or so. And I was like, I like how this is going. Over the next five years, we increased the... um, the concentration of the dose I take daily mm-hmm. um, to about 6%, which is, you know, pretty hefty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been on that same regimen for almost 20 years. So, so physically, psychically, emotionally, are you where you want to be? Do you anticipate going through any further changes? I don't, I don't think so. I'm tall. I'm, I'm a couple of inches shy of six feet. And my voice deepened and, um, I was perceived to be more masculine anyway, just as a matter of course, without having to do anything extra. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, like all of this, you know, all of the funs, the, like the sparklies that I dug as a kid. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my gosh. Like I could wear really, really fierce heels. Like, and that would be okay because like, I don't have to, I don't have anything to prove right now. Leaning decisively into the, the masculine part of my gender orientation, it freed up a whole lot of bandwidth to sort of play with whatever. So so yeah, so I have never, I wear makeup most of the time, a little bit. And uh, if I want to wear a skirt, I have an extensive collection of sort of kilty, you know, feudal Japan looking ninja skirt type deals. <laughs> like, my whole wardrobe is just black. Everything, everything. All yeah, black. I've never seen you in any color. But I will say <laughs> yeah. that your TEDx talk uh, is aptly titled, neither he nor she, but yeah. me, right? Like I'm going to do me. I'm doing Hannah Fonz, and no one's going to tell me what that means, what that should look like. Right now, actually, you look most masculine I've ever seen you. You always used to say that. What? How did you self-describe as? Do you remember or no? Uh, 
Oh, you know, some people see you and think that you're a... Oh, a gay guy with fancy eyebrows? A gay guy with fancy eyebrows, (laughs) yes. Well, yeah, Yeah. I mean, listen, the thing is, testosterone is a hell of a drug, and it has hardened my face. Well, and also, too, like, I'm middle-aged as well, like, you know, decisively so. So there's that. And my hairline has moved back. So there's that too. But yeah, I'm generally generally assumed, which is ironic as hell, because like I was saying, you know, before pre-T, pre-surgery, I was sort of like this butch presenting female person. And now I'm like more comfortable with, with the fe- more femme stuff. But now I'm like a squishy gay guy. I'm like, well, damn it. <laughs> it's like, you just, it's hilarious. You just can't. Well, that's funny. So I would say that for the viewers who can't see Hannah, maybe you can, because maybe this will be on YouTube uh, at one point, but I would describe you as a very handsome Annie Lennox of the Eurythmics. And I think you've been told that. that, no, does somebody I have many times. So, so just say something about the retention of your name, your, your decision, and you're oh. not caring how, when I would introduce you, I'd say, well, how do you want to be referred to? Do you want to be referred to as he, she, his, her? What's your pronoun, preferred pronoun? And you always say whatever you're, you're comfortable with. <clears throat> I usually, well, first of all, my name, my, you know, my mom gave me my name. I've toyed with with sort of changing it to, to sort of to be a little bit more masculine, like Hano. I have a couple of friends who call me that, but it's fine. I like it. I like it fine. And I think that if it was if it was a, a source of great distress to me, I'm sure that my mom would be understanding that I wanted to change it. But part of it too is just like you know she's been so supportive that like she and she did tell me once she's like, "Are you going to change your name?" And I was like, "I don't know. I don't. I don't think so. Why?" And she's like, "Well, because I, I would." That would kind of bum me out because mm-hmm. I was named for a great grandmother. You're honoring your mother, but it's also yeah. making a statement that you don't want to be, there's a spectrum and you don't totally. want to be boxed into one end of the spectrum. You want to be fluid. You want to represent yeah. yourself how you want to represent yourself on any given day and and not give so much meaning to the yeah. binary aspect of gender. Agreed. Yeah, exactly. And, and and as far as pronouns are concerned, I think earlier on in my sort of transitionary journey or whatever, it sounds... Pokey? <laughs> That's so okay. My journey, oh my God, <laughs> to my truth. <laughs> my journey to my truth. Um, no, seriously, though, I was, I, I said, in fact, in my TED Talk, I said, you know, call me he, she, I don't care. Fact of the matter is, upon great consideration, I have, I'm she. Because even even still, as much as as much as I have gone the the links that I've gone to to cultivate and uh, embody the kind of masculinity that I I wanted that I always wanted, I never got the the sort of the spark of joy that like trans men have reported at being called him or sir or he right restaurant you know like how you fellas doing like whatever that always I was like oh shit they're talking about me because I have never consi- I, I didn't really ever think of myself as a he I was just a very unorthodox she and so. Finally, I'm like, why am I like actually when someone asks me my pronouns, I'm like, she they. Um she they. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I don't because they might be because people, again, people, I, I get surred 99% of the time at stores, at you know, out in the world. I'm not gonna correct people. I'm like, it does not matter with the guy at the bodega who gives me my coffee, gender mis- misgenders me or whatever. I'm like, come on, like it to me. Anyway, 
That's interesting. I don't know if I, I, mean, I, I don't I don't want to minimize what your experience is, but I get called he all the time and sir all the time on the phone really? as well. Yeah. I mean, oh, okay. On the phone. Voice, Maybe right? so. Maybe so. Yeah. So, uh, I, and I don't feel the need to correct either. Now, I don't know if that's the same experience as you, obviously. I mean, they don't see me and they're not trying to visually integrate what I'm supposed right. to sound and look like, but it's also just part of, I don't know. I just don't want it to matter so much. Right. Well, I think I think that's an important, that's an interesting and important point about it mattering. It's like if you're going through it, if you're experiencing it, it's the biggest thing ever. It's hugely important. It's like if if you know, as important as it is to the people who are experiencing this, it's like if the culture at large could just chill out a little bit and have it mat and, and agree that it matters not that much. It's like when uh, when New York State. I, I, I kind of vacillated a little bit when, when we were able to put X on our driver's licenses. I was like, oh my gosh, at first I was so excited. I'm like, I'm totally doing that. Like, first of all, X's are just cool. And like, <laughs> you can get an X on a document somewhere. You should just do that because it's, it's neat. I was like, I'm going to do it. And then the political climate is so toxic and horrible and, and anti-trans. I was like, then I reconsidered. I was like, do I really want to pin the star on my own? Right. Jacket? Right. You know what I mean? If stuff gets really bad, do I'm going to be like, right. but then I was like, you know what? It's not even about transness. Honestly, it's like, why in the world is it relevant? What's in your pants? If your picture matches your face when you're going through TSA or going to or whatever, why in the world are we putting gender markers on licenses anyway? It's no one's business what my gender is. So it's X and you can figure, you can serve me or man me and you can squirm about it because so, so I got the, I got the X. You I'm, did? Yeah. In the end, wow. I'm just like, it's not, it's not a transgender statement. It's a statement about it's not your business. Oh, wow. Good for and you. And I don't understand. And so, yeah, it's, it's, so, so this kind of goes into the whole, like the transitioning young people, the sort of hysteria about that too, uh, which we can, we can. Okay. So go ahead, go there. I was going to go into, which is, I guess, part of oppression and discrimination where I wanted to head anyway. And it's all one okay. big basket of ugliness. So wherever <laughs> you want to start. I mean, I feel about it like the the hysteria around young people, like children, we'll say kids, right? The pre-adolescent children, youth declaring themselves to be transgender or non-binary or genderqueer or whatever, whatever word they pick, and then wanting to transition. Even even way back in the day in 40s, 50s, when when gender reassignment procedures became a thing that was that was done, even however rare it was. You know, a million years ago, we had the Harry Benjamin standards of care, which was obsolete and thankfully had been thrown out long ago. But part of that was that if you're seeking gender reassignment, surgery, hormones and surgery, you had to live in your proposed gender, your preferred gender or whatever, for a period of like a couple of years. Basically, you had to live as a crossdresser without the benefit of hormones, without the benefit of surgery, and put yourself at enormous physical risk professional risk, all of this in order to, you know. Right. So you look, clearly look like a male wearing a dress. And right. so you're bound to get, uh, you know, yourself in a dangerous, totally. dangerous situation. Totally. Yes. So this, there was this extraordinary amount of gatekeeping. So you had to sort of demonstrate that you were sufficiently miserable <laughs> as a, in the body that you, in your biological state to, to qualify for, okay, we're going to help you to, mm-hmm. to, to transition and, and live as you feel like you should. Mm-hmm. So there's always been this idea that, well, you can't go back and it's this permanent thing. And it's this huge, huge deal that suddenly all these people have something to say about. They have stake in it. 
this is not the case for someone who wants to get extreme plastic surgery, cutting up cosmetic surgery. Like there is no, you don't have to walk around with ginormous breast implants for a year. Well, we need some gatekeeping there. (laughs) What's that? (laughs) Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, you can, there there are plenty of cosmetic surgery casualties. You're just like, wow. I mean, you have transformed yourself to something uncanny. And the thing is, it's it's bodily autonomy. You can do that. It's not. Yeah, it's, but the truth. Okay, yes, but the truth is, you get mocked, right? I mean, these people well, with yeah. these enormous lips and these nose jobs and these pulling but their face like, so so tight that they don't even look human. So yeah. there is a lot of judgment around that. About sure. you now, is there oppression and discrimination? No. And do they have freedom of choice? Absolutely. But you know, I wonder if like this, there should be a movement. My body, my choice. Just like. Yeah. The pro-choice movement, mm-hmm. right? My body, my, tro- my choice. I mean, where where are the trans activists? Well, that's, I mean, it's sort of, this kind of goes back to the way, how big a deal is it? Say, you know, say you're kindergartner or whatever, kindergarten, first grade, first grade kid, first grade biological son declares, you know, Kyle. So Kyle, been, you know, has been kind of acting sort of withdrawn and quiet and not himself. And one night Kyle declares that he wants, he wants to be called Kayla and wants to wear dresses to school. And so to, to listen to, honestly, both the, the like pro-trans activist contingent and the anti-trans oppressive contingent, both of these groups would, uh, would say that this constitutes like a family emergency. Like, you know, you've got this, you either save your child, you've got to save your child from something. You're going to save him from, from taking his own life because of he's not been allowed to express who he is, or you're consigning your child to a life of marginalization and he's going to get butchered by a surgeon or something. Like it's immediately like there's this emergency. And the thing is, is that for the kid, the kid has got this very narrow frame of reference. They're only five or six years old. And all they know is that they want to be called Kayla and wear a dress. And it's like, what if everybody just chilled out and let them? Maybe, maybe Kyle's trans, maybe not. And I think that, that, the, the trans, you know, the very militant trans activists who flip out and make, make good-hearted, righteous allies, such as yourself, feel like we're standing on minefields, is that it's like, it's okay. If it's a phase, that's okay, too. Like, why is everybody freaking out? If the kid wants to wear a dress to school for six months and then either gets tired of getting bullied about it or just gets bored and moves on to dinosaurs or something, cool. Like, what's the deal? Like, well, Kayla's Kyle. You know, that was a first grade thing. Well, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, if we all be cool with it, then it would be okay. Well, that's but what I'm since saying. we're and not all cool glib. with it, then I can understand as right. a parent wanting to protect your child because you're sending them into a den of lions, potentially. Well, yes. Now, yes, this generation is much more open. And I mean, there are kids who really don't even care. They really don't care. Yeah. It depends how they're influenced by their parents as well about yeah. it. But there's so much more exposure these days that... All different things are seemingly much more acceptable on on the one hand, at least with the younger children who haven't been poisoned yet, right? Well, at least it's speakable. You know, you can talk about it and there's resources and at all different levels of whether for parents or for kids themselves, peers. Right. But I think so on one hand, like I want to believe that it's parents who are really just scared. They're scared of what their child is going to experience, but they're also maybe those who are scared of what people are going to think of them. And of course, for right, sure. what they've turned for their sure. child into or what they've yeah. done or how they landed up with a child like that. So and yeah. even the best too, there's also, I think if you, and it's, it's legitimate and needs to be, space needs to be made for it. Is like, even if you are 
supportive. You have a trans child who then transitions, is, is go through the steps and is assessed and like, yeah, this is this is the appropriate course of action. You're still there's still a, something like grief that is like, well, the child that I raised and and supported and loved as a as a daughter turns out is in fact my son. <laughs> and so there's something I, I think it's not you got to be generous for what the a parent goes through with that too, because that's an enormous transition. And it, I think that's that's very empathic to yeah. understand that they are mourning a loss. And so for those who can't put themselves in that kind of space of what that must be like, I think about a much easier experience uh, it's, it's very hard to talk about this in a way because you don't want to minimize the trans experience, but you try right. and find examples that can totally. be analogous to it so that the person who doesn't have to experience these things in life can understand. So like the thought came to me about divorce, mm-hmm. how divorce is like a death uh, oftentimes yes. because you're mourning the loss of what you envisioned for the rest of your life yes. and what that was going to be like. So mm-hmm. in a way, there's a similarity to mourn, right? You thought you had a daughter and now all of a sudden to kind of recalibrate and restructure mm-hmm. everything that you had fantasized about, wanted, imagined to yeah. be, has been completely tossed upside down. So yeah, I think that's an important point to make and, and uh, you know, about the empathy piece. But I also want to come back to the empathy, of course, for the person who's experiencing, sure. this, right, this dysphoria, yeah. because... I just I just have so much empathy because I can't imagine anything harder. So it goes back to when people say that this is a choice. I think, you know, who would choose this? Who would actively choose to be uh, oppressed, stigmatized, marginalized, potentially a victim of crime? Who right. would choose this unless it was something that was wholeheartedly self-destructive in in terms of one's sense of being, which is why I admire you so much too. I mean, the ease that you have with who you are, your body, your character, your gender, everything, you carry yourself with such ease. May we all have that level of comfort. And I know, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, well, look, it's not like I don't struggle. I know you struggle with the every day For stuff sure. like we all do sure. we're a freaking human being but yeah. <laughs> but for the obstacles and challenges that come with being trans and to 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 kind of reach that level of self-acceptance or self-love is to be admired yeah and again it's it's a thing that's that i'm just sort of thankful for because i kind of just i i feel like sort of lucked into it i mean there's do a lot of introspection and a lot of, I have a fantastic group of friends. We talk about this type of stuff all the time. It's like, what advice or support can you offer for trans people? I wish that there was more awareness and more um, promotion of the global cross-cultural deep historic precedent for the existence of trans people and not just our existence, but also our cultural importance. Pretty much every culture you can think of worldwide has some precedent for gender variation in it. So a lot of it has, you know, m- much of it has was suppressed in certain places by colonialism and Judeo-Christian missionary work and all that stuff, sadly, to the, to, you know, and more's the pity for all of that. But if you look, no matter what culture you come from, if you look back far enough into uh, religion, mythology, folklore, legends, all that kind of stuff, you, there are, there are uh, gender Trans, gender crossing and um, gender variant figures. Mm-hmm. And almost universally, I mean, there's some tragic ones, but mostly for universally, they're, you know, tricksters, holy people, visionaries, prophets, 
medicine keepers for their for their village or for their cultural group. Mm-hmm. And that's for me to learn about that was extraordinary. And so it's, you know, it informs the artwork that I make. It informs just kind of like how I present myself. And then again, like you don't talk about like how I sort of move through the world. It's like, we have been, we're ancient. We've been here forever. And our sort of what makes, what upsets people, but also attracts people. And what makes us interesting is, is that just sort of like archetypal gender charisma. I, I look forward and I hope that the sort of, the discourse amongst trans people about ourselves. I wish there was a little bit more empowering of ourselves in that way and a little bit more owning of that, that sort of socio-spiritual cultural clout. Because I think that in all of the conversation, as, as important as it is to have safe spaces and to be gentle with ourselves and like demand better, more consideration and better treatment from the culture at large, I think that a little bit of uh, muscularity in our presentation, whatever that might look like. I don't necessarily mean physically. I just mean a little a little bit more ferocity might be. I mean, yeah, to me, that sounds a little bit like a pipe dream. So the question okay. is, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe that's my cynicism. But the, the question is, how do we get there? Because if historically it was accepted on some level, it wasn't all, all mythological characters, it wasn't all demonized Right. And and now difference in general, difference is, is generally demonized. Mm-hmm. And yet, like, so if we look at the LGBTQ population, we've come a far way perhaps with accepting, being more accepting of lesbians, gays, and bi's. But we I haven't mean, really yeah. quite gotten there with the T yet, the, right. the transgender and LGBTQ. Yeah. So what's it going to take for us to to achieve that? Because... I mean, whether it's looking at the LGBTQ, looking at abilities and disabilities, looking at race, looking, I mean, we are looking at sex and sexism. We always need a population to belittle. It's just historically ingrained in us and lived. Yeah. So how, how, how are we going to do this? At the risk of sounding cynical, I don't think... I already did. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, I was going to say, you started it with pipe dreams. <laughs> I think that, uh, I think that there's, I mean, I'm also kind of, I, my, um, I've always been a huge fan of Carl Jung and uh, Jungian psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I, the, the androgyne, right. The sort of the two in one, you know, male, female, masculine, feminine figure is a very strong sort of archetypal, uh, it's a strong archetype. It's a big one. And I, it has, there's sort of an uncanniness about it. And it is both, um, it's magnetic. It's also sort of revolting, depending on how the person, the the observer comes to it. It's attractive, but also, you know, it's unsettling. Mm -hmm. And I think that trans people, we trigger that archetype hard because we we embody it. Like the the most flawlessly, quote unquote, passing trans woman or trans man is still fundamentally, it's like, you, 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 we embodied that started as one place. Now we're in this other thing. So there's a sort of a changeling kind of quality to it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that there's any way just because that, that runs so deep in human psyche. I don't think there's any way that you're going to ever neutralize that. And I don't know that you want to, you know what I'm saying? I'm just like, I, I wouldn't want to neutralize that. I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. So what does so that I mean? Think, and what, what, what do you, what, how are you defining neutralizing? I mean, I mean, you know, get us to some cultural point where 
people, you know, the average Joe on the street is like, oh, I absolutely accept the non-binariness and the duality of the androgyne. That's okay. Like, it's cool with me, man. Like, so no one's going to bat an eye at like Caitlyn Jenner or everybody's always going to bat an eye. I don't think there's any way around it. And, and I you're okay with that. You personally are okay with that. Well, the thing is, it hasn't cost me anything. You know what I'm saying? I've never gotten bashed. I've never, well, I shouldn't say it doesn't cost me. The cumulative eye batting, mm-hmm. there's, there's a whole lot of extra like backstage psychic work. I don't mean psychic in the woo sense. I mean like psych, psychological. There's a whole lot of backstage work that has to get done to like, I have to think about what people, I know how I see myself. I know who I am, but I have to think about what people are seeing when I'm interacting with them. You know what I mean? I'm like, okay, now. Yeah, I'm- but you, I, well, to me, there's two pieces to that. One is you've always said, I think, indicated that you kind of enjoy the titillation. You enjoy the discomfort of the person who struggles to kind of guess. I don't enjoy it. That sounds a little, that sounds a little yeah. sadistic. <laughs> um, playful. Play- sure, yes. I'm totally willing to do that. Okay. When I'm in the mood, you know, but sometimes I just want to get my coffee. Sometimes I just want to use the bathroom. Fair. Prefer there not to be, this potential for any sort of drama or some sort of incident about that. Even if it's just somebody giving me like a triple, a triple take in the bathroom, like right. I pee, you know what I'm saying? So, so, you know, and again, too, it's like, I'm working with a deep reservoir of support and confidence about this. Okay. So like what might be perceived as a microaggression, I have, I have the, I have enough bandwidth to, to absorb a lot of that and really not be too troubled by it. But if that wasn't the case, it would be very different. Right. But right. The, the sort of doubling of consciousness that like you, that who's, who wrote about it, it wasn't WDB boss. It was, it was a writer on race has talked about the doubling of consciousness that has to happen with people who get rate, who are racialized. So, you know, white folks are just white folks. Like we're just like the, the, the default. And then there's a, a there, there's people of color, you know, we've racialized people. And so it's like, if you're going to move through the world like that, you have to double your consciousness because you, there's a way you interact with your folks and there's a way you interact with everybody out there. Okay. And I think the, the trans experience is, is uh, I mean, there's no equivalent to being racialized, but trans is a decent yeah. parallel. Yeah, yeah, it's a decent parallel. So I was going to say the other aspect of that, of enjoying some of the playfulness around it mm-hmm. at times. And I think it's important what you said. You corrected me rightly so, that it's, you don't always get to choose, just like somebody right. who's a person of color doesn't get to choose when to turn yeah. it on and turn it off. And you want to be able to control that. Like when I'm in the mood, don't give me this when I'm not calling right. for it. What uh, can social workers do who want to explore working with the trans population who are not necessarily part of that population? As a, as a social worker, whether a clinician or whatever, whatever the description is, I think not necessarily not going into a session or going into meeting with a client or a patient presuming at the, who, who like, you know, to be trans or non-binary or, you know, gender, uh, gender diversion in any kind of way, not going into that interaction, immediately assuming that their transness is the, is the problem or is the, is a crisis in need of intervention. I'm actually excited. I'm starting a switch. I switched to healthcare, healthcare providers, and I'm meeting with my people next week. And one of the things I'm going to talk to them about is getting back into therapy. With and it's with the, the Mount Sinai Trans Care Consortium. So, like anybody that they send me to is going to be conversant and all this stuff. So, I'm not going to have to spend two sessions educating. But part of that is that it's not, and I don't, I have, I got nothing to talk about in trans stuff. I want to talk about what it's like, you know, facing middle age, like we were talking before we started, having broken up with my partners recently. So, there's all kinds of stuff that I want to talk about. Nothing to do with being trans, really. I mean, it, it, it colors it, but that's not the, that's not the problem. So, I think that always remembering that you're dealing with a whole human 
who has multiple factors and multiple facets that make up who they are and not immediately assuming because their transness might be the most interesting thing to you <laughs> and what you want to talk about and what you're, you know, you've heard all these narratives about all of the, the anguish and the, oh, it's just every day. It's just so goddamn hard. Well, maybe, but also maybe not. And so remember that it's, it's just a part of the person. It's not, it's not the totality of who they are. Yeah. Now, and that it's not a disease. It's going to be looked at like it's pathology, uh, but there might be some disease, but only if right. the person is raising that as an issue. Exactly what yeah. you're saying, right? It's a condition. Now, what's that? You know, I think of it as a condition. It's like... You do think of it as a condition? Well, sort. I mean, what are you going to call it? It's like, I, I struggled too with like, well, is it... I mean, I could talk to my insurance company about paying for my hormones. And so it's like, if I'm talking to my insurer about it, is it a... Not a disease like that, not a mental illness. No, like those, those, I reject that utterly, but it is a thing. So what what are you going to call it? It's like an existential condition. Like I call it an identity, but I mean, I don't feel like I have the right to call it what I call it. I would want to know if I'm working with a client, what does the client call it? But I would also think that they would need some validation of experience. So I would want to use my cultural humility and ask Mm -hmm. them, how do they perceive their identity is it an yeah. issue is it a condition is it a disease is it a stigma that, right so, yes. what, there you go what exactly. is it to that person yeah, yeah you tell um, me you know what's that i have the, you know, have the person like you tell me right I always talk with my students about the idea, if you're white and you're working with a person of color, at some point, I would think that it's going to come up and there's an elephant in the room that they're wondering, how can you really understand what I'm experiencing? So that it's incumbent on the social worker to say, I wonder what it's like for you to work with a white social worker or a white therapist. And Mm -hmm. so would you say, you know, even though it might not be a thing and it's not a thing, that if we both pretend that it's not alive and part of your identity, right? To say, Mm -hmm. what is it like working with a heteronormative social worker? Yeah, 100% legitimate. That that transparency right there, I think that that, there's nothing nothing but good can come from that. We're in cancel culture, right? So everybody's terrified of addressing the elephant in the room and because they might say something that's going to offend. And, And I don't think that therapists and social workers or any helping professionals are immune to that. They're scared. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, you know, how how do you service somebody? How do you do well by them unless you acknowledge or put out there the concern? So I could even go beyond that and say, not only how does it feel to work with a heteronormative social worker, but, you know, I'm actually nervous about saying mm-hmm. something offensive. Even even when I take questions from your students in when we're in person, there's at least at least a couple times during the conversation, all someone will always start with this huge long disclaimer about like, I don't know if this is going to be an offensive question, and I just want to say it right. I don't want to like come off as a, as ignorant or, or or rude or whatever. And it's all of this preamble before they get to a very fundamental basic question. Mm. They need to know if they're going to be or, or something about like how, who I date or like the effects that testosterone has had on me physically. Like, what has that been like? These are personal questions, but that's the point. That's why I'm there. So if someone's asking in good faith, it is not fair at all that trans folks are, that it falls to us to answer these questions. It's not fair. It sucks. It's extra labor that we have to do. And it makes for a lot of awkwardness. Can make for worse. It can be hostile, but like even at best, you're just like, oh my God. Yeah. So again, we're, we're talking about like, cis people don't have to talk about their bodies like this. Right. You're talking about fatigue, right? Right. Right. We don't have to answer. Either. Yeah. But it's not fair, but it, it's the fact of it. And so in order for people to be educated well and have reasonable awareness of trans stuff, 
somebody's going to have to answer these questions. And it's kind of a drag that it has to be us, but here it is. People are like, oh, well, when are you going to have the surgery? You know, or, or have you had the surgery? And it's like, um, I think it was Laverne Cox did an amazing job shutting down an interviewer. It wasn't Oprah, but um, she was on a show, on a, on a morning talk show. And the, the interviewer was like, so, you know, she basically was like, so have you had the surgery? And Laverne is like, do you, like, let's just unpack that question a little bit. You do realize what you're asking me, right? Like you're asking me to describe my genitals and talk about a very intimate procedure that I, you know, I'm like, would you do that at a cocktail party? Mm, mm. You know? Um, in fact, I even had a, a, an expert. But it's this idea of this right yeah. to know, right? And that people exactly. get angry when they discover something about somebody's sexual orientation, somebody's right. identification in, in various ways that were not visible. And then they find out later and mm. they feel that they are entitled to know right. that. It's the result of like sensationalizing and exotifying at the expense of remembering this is a person that you're talking about. Right. I'm saying it's like you right. know, turn into be these sort of figures or characters or, or something. Fetishes that there's, yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah, exactly. that's huge too. For sure, huge. Yeah. So um, I just yeah. want to wrap up this incredibly sure. insightful conversation. This, uh, we covered so much terrain. I think yes. so much. <laughs> but, going deep. Great. <laughs> well, you're so fascinating. It could go on and on. <laughs> uh, there, I want to, I want to end with asking you to make a call to action mm-hmm. and, and telling us what you want people to take away from this conversation. Just relax a little bit. <laughs> like, there's not, you know, whether for, for good or ill, it's like if, you know, if you find transness, you know, confusing, off-putting, all of those things, that is fine. That is okay. It is not the usual thing that you come across. It is somewhat exotic, just quantitatively, the numbers, like there's not that many of us relative to everybody else, right? So it's like, huh, it is novel and it's fine. But like, please don't wear the novel on your face. You know what I'm saying? Just like chill. Remember this first and foremost, this is a person with just as much complexity and sensitivity as you have. And the fact of this sort of exotic thing, even if you are delighted and fascinated and want to know more, relax a little bit. So yeah, relax a little bit. And if you find trans people alarming, maybe examine why it is that you recoil so much. Like, what is it? What is it about? Because it's not, it's not us. You know, if someone has a very strong negative recoil at the notion of transness or about, you know, bodies being unexpected, what then what you think that's, that is, that suggests to me that some, some introspection and internal work is in order on their part, not on Mm. the trans person's part. I love that. Yeah, that's great. And then for, for trans people, I would say also relax a little bit. (laughs) I think that it's, it might be the biggest thing you ever went through, but other people, again, this is an alien experience. Like, remember how I would say for, for trans people, it's like, remember how, like off, you know, off balance and and not, I mean, mentally, but I just mean like trying to find your footing. Right. On identity. Remember what that was like. Right. See, I think that people are really uncomfortable with the unknown and the more trans people there are and the more trans people that live their life, you know, in a very true and honest way, the more, so I'm going back to my cynicism that I had that maybe I'm (laughs) trying to undo that. I don't know, not consciously, (laughs) but just like I had a moment of hope here that the more it gets normalized, (laughs) I don't know, it'll pass, right. But, you know, and you're saying that jokingly, but the more people will get at ease with with people who are different. Mm -hmm. Just respect trans people as like the ancient archetypal sources of inspiration and fabulousness that 
we are. <laughs> that's all. Okay. That's not yeah. a big ask. That's bring us a- bring us offerings of fruit and gold. Like <laughs> <laughs> invite us to name your children. I mean, like that's what you know, that's what we're supposed to There for. you go. There you bless go. your weddings and bury your dead. And like, yeah, I mean, let's just let her do our job. That's it. <laughs> Be fine. <laughs> Um, you're so awesome. I thank you so much for allowing me to pick your brain and your heart. Um, always, you know, so um, generous with your vulnerability and your life experience and just who you are. And I hope that that shines through. And I always rely on that because I think that historically my students have walked away from spending some time with you thinking you're the coolest person ever. So it's like one friends at a time, you can, you know, for sure, for change sure. the world. It's been, it's, listen, I have always, it's always been such a delight to go and meet with your students. And I'm perpetually impressed with the sensitivity and the intelligence that they come to, you know, the, the questions that they ask. And it's all, yeah. And I just, I'm like, the, the, the more, like, they're going to go out into the world and do good. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's always the impression that I get. And it's just, it's a real, it's an honor to be able to have even a little, little piece to do with that. So it's just a delight. So happy to be here anytime. And vice versa. Thank you, Hannah. I'm sure I'll see you soon. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who i meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. And I've been asking myself, what would Dr. Myers do?